This is the Review of Democracy. My name is Ferenc Lazzo, and it is my pleasure to host Gary Gerstel today. Welcome to the show, Professor Gerstel. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Great to have you at Revdam. Gary Gerstel is a historian who has written extensively about immigration, race, and nationality, with a particular focus on how Americans have constituted and reconstituted themselves as a nation and the ways in which immigration and race have disrupted and reinforced that process. He has also studied the history of American political thought, institutions, and conflicts, and maintains a long-standing interest in questions of class and class formation. Gary Gerstel is Paul Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge University and a fellow of Sydney Sussex College over there. He is also a fellow of the British Academy and of the Royal Historical Society. Some of his most well-known books include the co-authored The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, 1930 to 1980, which is a book from 1989, and which he has followed up with a co-edited volume, Beyond the New Deal Order, published some three decades later. Furthermore, he is the author of Liberty and Coercion, The Paradox of American Government from the Founding to the Present, from 2015, and of American Crucible, Race and Nation in the 20th Century, which came out in an updated edition in 2017. More recently, he has co-edited A Cultural History of Democracy in the Modern Age, published in 2021. And I should perhaps briefly mention that Gary Gerstel is also the creator, writer, and narrator of a four-part BBC World Service radio series, America, Laboratory of Democracy, that was first aired in 2018. Now, his newest book, which we are here to discuss today, is titled The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. It is a deeply learned and accessibly written book that proposes numerous original and insightful arguments and a book that I have read uh, with great pleasure. Now, this new book of yours focuses primarily on the rise and fall of the neoliberal order in the U.S., and you separate neoliberalism from modern liberalism, underlining that its promise of emancipation and individuality, in fact, makes neoliberalism more akin to classical liberalism. So as a first question, could I ask you to elaborate uh, on this point you make and on these distinctions? Yes. Well, first, thank you for that um, very kind and generous introduction. It's a Pleasure to be talking with you today, and I hope your listeners find our discussion um, of interest. Liberalism becomes a quite complex project to talk about because it has a long history, and it's also been protean. It has meant different things to different groups, different periods of time. It also means has acquired different meanings uh, in different parts of the world, and I think that will be important as we discuss the neoliberal neoliberalism in the United States, um, uh, which is the focus of my book. I think the starting point for understanding um, uh, 
modern liberalism and neoliberalism is to spend a moment on what I and others call classical liberalism, uh, which arose in the late 18th century and flourished across the 19th century and early into the 20th century. Uh, classical liberalism had several dimensions to it, uh, political, economic, um, uh, moral. Here I want to focus on the economic dimension because I think this is what is, is quite crucial. The economic dimension of classical liberalism promised a world of abundance and freedom if the possibilities of a market economy could be freed from all the artificial constraints that were burdening economies uh, in Europe in the 18th and 19th century. So monarchs were restricting what economic actors could do because they, uh, they wanted individuals to enrich the crown rather than necessarily to enrich the market. Aristocracies performed a similar role. There was a doctrine of mercantilism that sought to organize world trade to enrich monarchs without necessarily a good consideration of comparative advantage and who could produce goods most efficiently and at what cost and, 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 and for greatest profit. Uh, and those who fashioned themselves economic liberals wanted to get rid of all these constraints. They wanted to get rid of monarchs. They wanted to get rid of aristocrats. They wanted to get rid of mercantilism. They wanted to allow individuals, in the words of the great Scottish economic, economist and philosopher Adam Smith of the 18th century, he wanted to free people to be able to truck barter and exchange as they saw fit. And out of this world of economic freedom which would come all kinds of opportunity, all kinds of new schemes of production, uh, all kinds of development in the economy and growth and ultimately a rising standard of living for just about everybody. And where uh, liberalism went furthest in the 19th century, and one of the places it went furthest was in the United States of America, uh, enormous economic powers uh, were released. Uh, and there was a tremendous amount of new economic dynamism uh, and a new elite class of capitalists, the bourgeoisie who privileged the accumulation of wealth above all else and wanted to free the energies of what they regarded as a tremendously dynamic uh, and powerful new economic system. Uh, and so all kinds of new materials and new, new kinds of markets appeared. Uh, enormous wealth was generated, but it also generated um, extreme crisis uh, because economic development was very uneven, a tremendous gap between the rich and the poor, and also ca capitalist economies under liberal aegis seem to be uh, developing through fits and starts. Uh, uh, a great boom would be followed by a great bust. There seemed to be no order, no planning, no cushion for those who were the casualties of this industrial system. And so by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, there's a sense that liberalism was no longer adequate as a, as, a, as a philosophy to govern the economy. And there was a search for alternatives. And the most familiar search for alternative was, was, of course, socialism and later communism. And one of the primary purposes of those philosophies was to inject more economic rationality on the one hand and more economic justice into economic processes 
And on the other side, somewhat later, but with equal power, were the collectivisms of, of the right, uh, culminating in fascism and Nazism in the 1920s uh, and 1930s. Uh, and many people who had been once uh, willing to be, participate in a liberal world order began to abandon liberalism uh, for these newer uh, ideologies that promised uh, greater rationality, greater planning, greater brotherhood, uh, and greater social justice. And so if liberalism was going to survive, it was going to have to reform itself. And it began to reform itself first in Britain and uh, in, in the United States uh, and, and, and then elsewhere. And it began to reform itself by saying, um, we recognize the inequality between rich and poor as a big problem. We recognize that capitalism is great at generating wealth, but not at distributing wealth. We recognize that liberalism has to take on the social question, the labor question. Uh, it has to manage, it has to find some mechanism for managing this rambunctious economic system. It has to distribute the fruits of this economic system somewhat more fairly. And in the 1930s, the, uh, there's a movement in the United States called the New Deal under the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt that advertises liberalism as the new philosophy of America. And it's different from the old liberalism because it presents itself as a, as a middle way between the collectivisms of the left, communism, socialism, and the collectivisms of the right, fascism. And, and it promises a world of abundance, relative equality, under conditions that maintain individuality and what and other things that liberal liberals prized, democracy, the rule of law. So it promised itself as uh, a middle way. And what is this going to be called in the United States? In the United States, Franklin Roosevelt seizes on the word liberalism. In fact, it is a form of social democracy. If you want to find social democracy in the United States, you look to the liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt and the liberalism of the New Deal. And this liberalism becomes a liberalism that says, we're gonna have a big state that manages capitalism and the public interest. We're gonna allow capitalists to accumulate wealth, but we're gonna tax it. We're gonna redistribute their wealth to those poor on the social spectrum. We're also gonna manage the business cycle. We're gonna have a large state. We're gonna recognize that the private interests of capitalists under certain circumstances have to submit to the public good as manifested as manifesting itself in a, um, a powerful state able to govern in the public interest. This is what liberalism in America becomes. And this is what liberalism in America still is today. And it, it's different than liberalism in Europe in that respect. We can talk another time, this would take another hour, about why they couldn't call this social democracy in the United States, but they felt they couldn't, and so they called it liberalism. This is the first of the new liberalisms. Of course, neoliberalism means new liberalism. But the neoliberalism that I write about emerges a little bit later than the, the new liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and this new liberalism, which arises in Central Europe, mostly Austria, mostly under the leadership of an Austrian economist by the name of Frederick Hayek, also proclaims that they want to um, forge a middle way 
between collectivisms on one side and what they call the failed promise of classical liberalism on the other side. And they recognize that classical liberalism of the 19th century uh, put itself into crisis, and it, but it, this neoliberalism felt that it could offer a new liberalism uh, by calling on government to strengthen markets, uh, strengthen individual liberties, uh, but without uh, venturing into what Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal were doing, which was a form of social democracy, because Hayek thought social democracy was a stalking horse for socialism and communism. And there were supporters of Hayek in the United States who see the New Deal in precisely these terms. Roosevelt is leading America to, to socialism, uh, or worse, to communism. Uh, and this is not ultimately going to be true to liberal ideas, ideals. So uh, what neoliberalism, and this, this new liberalism, which is calling itself neoliberalism, what it tries to do is to recreate the original promise of classical liberalism of the 19th century, but recognizing that it must use um, a stronger state to build the kind of markets that are going to make a market economy successful. Uh, and so this neoliberalism is more in, uh, oriented toward individuality than to the public good. And it is more interested in reco recovering the emancipatory spirit of 19th century liberalism than social democracy was. Uh, and it believes that the promise of the original liberalism can be delivered as long as governments are able and willing to use the tools to both create and then sustain what markets require in order to flourish. So this is the second of the new liberalisms to appear in the 20th century. For a time, neoliberalism has difficulty defining itself because there is already a new liberalism on the block. That is the new liberalism of the New Deal. But by the 1960s and 70s, as the New Deal is beginning to falter, as a heavily government-managed uh, government economy is not delivering the goods anymore, this is the moment that neoliberalism gets its opening and begins to preach uh, restoring markets that were characteristic of the 19th century, uh, but willing to recognize that the state must be used to a much greater extent to build and support the market economy desired. And that is what brings us to the story of, of neoliberalism. Great. Thank you so much for that. That's certainly a very rich and also wide-ranging reflection on this really crucial uh, distinction that you make uh, in the book. And, you know, one thing that really struck me is that you study how ideas move from the periphery to the mainstream uh, in the U.S. And you, you tell quite a lot about the 1930s, then also about the 1970s. 
and towards the end of the book about the 2010s, right? And one of the key concepts you use to analyze this is, is, is that of political order, right? How political orders are made. And I was wondering whether you see any kind of logic uh, to this story, right? You, of course, your title includes the expression rise and fall, which would suggest that there is some kind of arc of history, right? And in a sense, what you're suggesting on the pages of this book is that every fourth decade brought really momentous changes to the U.S. So do you see any logic to that? Well, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to tie myself to a 40-year cycle. You, you are correct in perceiving that there are two 40-year cycles um, uh, that dominate the narrative arc of the book, the New Deal order that goes from the 1930s to the 1970s, and the neoliberal order that goes from the 1970s through the 20 teens. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, but I would not want to. I would not want to say that there's going to be um, a new political order soon, and that it's going to last 40 years. I think um, uh, it's more helpful to to ask uh, what is it that causes one political order to dissolve uh, and a, a, another one to be given an opportunity to arise. And here, I think what stands out in the book is the centrality of of an economic crisis vague and severe enough so that it becomes a governing crisis, so that existing formulas for governing the economy and the polity no longer work, uh, and the uh, and the chaos and the failure to enact successful policies and the and the popular protest that then results from that creates an opportunity, creates an opening for new political ideas to move from the margins into the mainstream. I should add that um, my conception of political order, uh, it's uh, political orders are complex entities that involve uh, getting elected, which means having stable constituencies. And to get elected in the United States, you need a lot of money. And so you need a, a, a... a stable of donors that's stable and that you can rely on big money donors. Uh, You need think tanks. uh, You need to uh, influence elite opinion going all the way up to the Supreme court. You also have to have a, um, uh, a narrative that convinces a majority of Americans that your vision of the good life, if, if you are elected is going to be the dominant one and is going to be the appealing one. So Political orders are complex networks of institutions, constituencies, moneyed interests, uh, interest groups, that once they establish themselves, um, uh, if they are successful in establishing themselves, can have enormous staying power. And for the period of time in which they have staying power, they can enforce a kind of ideological hegemony on politics, not just on members of their own party, but this is critical in the book, but on those who oppose them. Uh, and uh, there's a critical, one critical moment in the book occurs when in the 1950s, the, when the first Republican president is elected in 20 years. And the big question is, is he gonna take down the new deal and the new liberalism of Roosevelt or is he gonna sustain it? And he ends up sustaining it. And that's what makes the new deal into something more than 
a temporary gain. It makes it into a political order. And when the Democrats take possession of the White House in the 1990s, after the Reagan revolution of the 1980s, the question is, when the, the Democrats coming to power, and this is in the person of President Bill Clinton, is he going to take down uh, the neoliberal order that Reagan has fashioned, or is he going to endorse it? Well, he ends up endorsing it, much as Eisenhower endorsed the New Deal order of the 1950s. And so I treat these moments of the 1950s and 1990s as, um, as crucial moments of legitimation where a political order succeeds, demonstrates it's succeeding not just by getting votes from its own partisans, but by convincing the opposition party that its core ideas are the dominant ones in American life. And if they want to be elected and get the fruits of, fruits of victory, that they are going to have to submit to these dominant ideas. What throws political orders into crisis is then an economic crisis that uh, generates sufficient discord and conflict uh, so that the, uh, the reigning political ideas that had delivered the goods economically and politically are no longer regarded satisfactory. And that is the moment when ideas confined to the periphery and that don't seem to matter in American politics have an opportunity to move into the mainstream. And this, is, this gives those who aspire to create a new political op uh, opportunity, uh, I mean, those who want to establish an opportunity to establish a new political order, this is what gives them their opportunity. So it just so happens that economic, the big economic crisis seemed to come at 40-year intervals, <laughs> the Great Depression, the long recession of the 1970s, and then, of course, the great financial crash of 2008-2009, which is the key background to the coming apart of the neoliberal order. Is there a logic to that? Well, you know, there was once a Marxist economist named Kondratiev, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, who said the world moves in 50-year cycles. Um, and, uh, uh, but he, and he mapped this from, the, from like the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. He was writing in the 1950s and 60s, but he never had an explanation for why a cycle should be 50 years or why it should be 40 years. So people stopped talking about the Kondratiev cycle. And I can't, I don't have an answer for you as to, you know, do these major economic crises erupt every 40 years? I would say, no, I'm not going to tie myself to that. Uh, but there is this interesting point of, of regularity. If we're to understand the regularity, though, it's more important that we look at the at, at the key economic crises rather than impose on this a 40-year plan. No, that's, that's really fascinating. And I think it's indeed one of the most striking parts of your argument that it's not so much uh, FDR and Reagan who are most commonly associated uh, with the making of the New Deal order and then this neoliberal uh, turn who really reinforced this, but really the presidents from the other side who come after them, right? As you explained, right? Eisenhower and Clinton are perhaps more interesting from the point of view of really the, the hegemony of these two, uh, two orders. And with that, I also wanted us to perhaps talk a bit more about your specific approach, because it seems to me that your book really combines quite a number of things, right? You talk about elite and popular level of politics, you talk a lot about economic, but also moral issues, and you're certainly very interested in both the domestic 
and the international contexts of the story uh, you're telling. So I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how you selected your more specific foci, and did you have some kind of idea of how to combine all these different interests? Well, once the, the, the key idea that drives the book is, is that of uh, political order, uh, understood as a complex political configuration. Uh, and once I bought into that, and I have bought into that for some time, as you announced in the introduction, I have a book called The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, published in 1989. Not quite 40 years ago, but um, not so far from 40 years either. And uh, this was part of an effort on the part of my co-author at the time, Steve Fraser, and I to uh, to get beyond an obsession in American politics with two, four, and six-year cycles. Um, uh, not all presidential elections carry the same significance um, and should not be treated as carrying the same significance. But of course, a president like a prime minister is is such an important post that so much writing focuses on who's going to win this election, who's going to win that election. And our ambition and the reason we were drawn to a concept of political order is to understand longer movements in, in political life and to understand that um, politics is not just about elections. It's, it's, um, uh, it's about generating ideas that, um, uh, that dominate. Uh, and it's about uh, conscripting constituencies that that go on and on from election to election. And, there, and it's not every election that a constituency can be up for grabs. Uh, and so we, be, we began to develop this concept of, of political order. And once you, and into our concept of political order were, were donors, intellectuals, think tanks, electoral constituencies, moral conceptions of uh, the good life, uh, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, the importance of media in, in terms of getting out messages and uh, the importance of inventing new media. If you buy into a conception of political order, as I have, that then demands from you that you pay attention to all these matters. And uh, as you know, from reading the book, there's high intellectual history in the book and there's serious policy analysis, but there's also an, an attempt to understand why figures like Reagan, Roosevelt, and Trump were such enormously popular figures, and that requires me to, um, to, 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 to study voters and, 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 ordin and attitudes of ordinary men and women, and what was it in, in, that enabled Reagan to peel off constituencies that had been so dedicated to the Democratic Party for so many years? What enabled him to do that? What um, made Trump um, such, um, what gave him the ability to command the attention of the media like no other political figure of my lifetime? How do we understand that? Now, there's a, there's a an old, there's a subtext here. It's it's not just about political order requires me to be far, wide ranging and comprehensive in terms of my approach to history. 
Uh, and uh, I've, I've been that for a long time. I, I'm both a social historian and a political historian. I'm both a historian of social movements and of, and of political thought. But I also wanted to make an intervention um, with regard to the study of neoliberalism itself, because many people who study neoliberalism are on the left, I would say, in one form or another, the vast majority. And most of those who, um, many, not most, but many who study neoliberalism regard it as an elite project. Uh, this is a way for capitalist elites um, to rein in the excesses of democracy, to create an economy where markets and capitalist imperatives dominate everything. Uh, and uh, the way in which um, the um, story of neoliberalism is told is through the story of, of elites, intellectuals on the one hand and uh, deep-pocketed donors on the other, their ability to capture critical institutions of the state, their ability to financialize the economy. Uh, this becomes, in, in the telling of these scholars, an elite project in which uh, the people are either bystanders or dupes. Uh, they do not have agency in this project. And my response to that is first to say, on the one hand, I agree with portions of these studies of neoliberalism. Uh, it has been an elite project on the, on the part of those who want to free up capital from constraints uh, of the New Deal order and to free up wealth to go where it wants to go without having to answer to a Congress or to government agencies or to forces from below saying wealth should be more equitably distributed. So I agree with that part of it. But I also say neoliberalism would not have had the staying power it has had in the United States and elsewhere if it did not succeed in persuading a lot of ordinary people that a neoliberal world would be a world of freedom and emancipation them. It would, it would give them something powerful. Part of what made Reagan successful was not simply that he had a lot of rich capitalist donors, but that he had a message for the American people, that he was going to free the economy from shackles, from excessive regulation. He was going to free the spirit of liberty in America that was connected to the American Revolution, the birthright of the American people. And he said, if you stay with me on this journey, we will create a better and richer America for everybody, not just for elites. And so part of my insistence that I have to range both high and low in the social order is to understand what is it that links plans that are being hatched up on high with the popular support and groundswell of support for neoliberalism that is emerging from below. And if I'm going to be successful methodologically, if I'm going to be successful in pulling this off, it's not enough to study elites. Um, there's a wonderful book by Jane Mayer called Dark Money, which is all about the Koch brothers. Uh, arguably, I don't know if they are actually the richest family in America. I imagine the Bezos family uh, may be richer, but um, you know, they are one of the top five, top 10 richest families 
They have this enormous industrial conglomerate, Coke Industries, privately held. Um, and uh, and she tracks all the ways in which they have been, a- been able to infiltrate their money into political organizations so as to dominate politics. And uh, the research is amazing that she has done on this book. Um, and it, it's a book that your, your, your readers, if they are not aware of, may well be interested in. But it's also not sufficient. We can't, we can't understand the Trump phenomenon or the Reagan phenomenon simply in terms of a conspiracy from on high to infiltrate all these organizations and institutions. I continue to believe in the agency of ordinary working people. And if you believe in the agency of ordinary working people, we have to think seriously about why they would uh, give themselves over to an elite project of this sort. And part of what my book tries to do is to make sense of the view, not just from above, but from the view of below. And that demands for me a comprehensive methodology that uh, is almost as wide as the society that I'm trying to study. Mm-hmm. Great. Again, if there's perhaps another dimension which is really quite crucial to your argument, it is the international one, right? If there's kind of a second state that plays quite a prominent role in, in, in you making the argument, it is really the Soviet Union, right? You basically say that it's really the threat of communism uh, after 1945 in particular, right? With the rise, with, with the beginning of the Cold War that dissuades Republicans from dismantling the New Deal order that they inherited. And that then it is also the, the collapse of Soviet uh, communism by 1989-91 that then really plays a central part in the triumph of neoliberalism that we see in the 90s and that we, we may associate uh, with the, with the two-term uh, presidency of, of Clinton. So I was wondering whether you could say more about this competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and how the evolution of Soviet communism and then its collapse impacted the political order uh, in the U.S. Well, thank you for that question. Um, that issue is central to my book, as you have, and you have read, you have certainly read that correctly. Uh, I think the arguably the most important event um, of the 20th century was the Russian Revolution of 1917 and everything that issued from it. A Theodore Draper, a one-time communist and then a fierce anti-communist in the United States, <clears throat> once called the 20th century the communist century. And I think he was right to do so. Um, we have to excavate that history now, although unfortunately Putin is helping us or compelling us to excavate that. It's striking to me as I teach students today uh, how little they know or care about the Cold War and how, and how little they understand of how much it dominated every aspect of human life. I am a, I am a Cold War baby. Um, I, was, I was born in one of the hot moments of the Cold War and uh, it dominated my life for decades and I was not unusual in that regard. Um, and uh, uh, what made it um, um, so deep and so, so compelling? Well, the, the, the surface answer is you know, atomic weapons, you know, that the two antagonists could blow each other to smithereens. <clears throat> but the deeper reason is that America and the Soviet Union were founded on radically dissimilar bases. Both of them we might call revolutionary. America, in its essence, liberal, wanting to free the energies of capitalism and uh, 
sacralize the individual and 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 put all kinds of individuals in position to um, pursue their fortunes, their their talents, uh, their opportunities, understanding that this was going to generate tremendous growth and inequality, but the price would be worth it. And the Soviet Union, Russian Revolution, communism, saying to that, uh, this is going to lead only to capitalist exploitation and to misery for the working class and its and the dominance of an elite. And they saw the 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 curse of everything in private property, and what they really meant by that was private corporate property. And they wanted to put public good over private interests and socialize all industry. Um, nationalize all industry for 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 the public good, and they swore themselves that wherever they established themselves, there would be no capitalism that any capitalist in the West could recognize. And so you have in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, you have uh, these um, two emerging superpowers um, who radically oppose each other in terms of their fundamental belief systems. Uh, and then on top of this comes the theory of totalitarianism uh, in the 1930s and 40s that lumps communism and fascism into a new kind of uh, category of dictatorship. And this new category of dictatorship was this, that the, the power of these collectivist regimes was so intense, their command of the media so intense, their ability to rile up the feelings of the population, get them involved in war and, and, and the hunt for enemies, the ability of, these, of new fascist and communist states to control all the institutions of, of power and media to control minds, was so great that wherever, this is what the theory said, and this is its critical component, wherever a totalitarian regime established itself, it could never be removed. It would be there forever. And the ruling elites in the United States believe this. Capitalist elites believe this. This is what compelled the United States both Democrats and Republicans, their worldwide containment of communism. This is, what, this is what compelled the United States to go into Vietnam, a country whose market and resources were utterly inconsequential to the welfare of the American economy. But the feeling was, if Vietnam went communist, it would never be recovered. Japan might be next. Ch China was gone. The rest of S Southeast and then maybe South Asia would be gone. And it would never be retrieved. Now, that theory turned out to be wrong. Is Vietnam communist today? No, not really. Is China communist? No, not really. So the theory turned out to be wrong, but bear with me for a minute as I, you, you know, listeners have to think, well, this is what was believed. If you believed it, what were the consequences? How did you then behave? Well, internationally, you had to fight communism everywhere. What, it mean, what did it mean domestically? Well, there were communists in the United States, not as many as there were in Europe, but significant numbers in the 1930s and 40s. 
And they were very strong in the labor movement. And the labor movement was a very important element of American life in the 1930s and 40s, a very important element of Roosevelt's New Deal. If you're a capitalist in the United States, you're thinking we have to avert the worst. How do we avert the worst? We cannot put workers in this country in a position to think that communism is their only alternative. We have to give them a greater stake in capitalism. We have to limit some of our prerogatives as capitalists in order to preserve the capitalist system domestically. In other words, the threat of communism compels capitalists in the United States to compromise with their workers in ways they otherwise would not have done. And they're doing this because they understand that there's a worse consequence out there for them if they don't compromise with their workers. And that worst compromise is communism. And communism means the expropriation of private corporate wealth and its inclusion in the state and its transformation into a resource for the working class. So at the heart of of the early parts of my book is an argument that there is a grand class compromise in America between um, capitalist elites and the working class. And this compromise, compromise is made possible by the threat that communism instills in elites, capitalist and political elites in the United States. And thus, it's no accident that the that the greatest power of the labor movement in the United States occurs when the Cold War is at its height. Uh, this is when the social welfare state in America is at its most generous. This is when inequality between rich and poor is at its smallest point in the last 150 years. These are the 1950s and 60s. And this is made possible by the threat of a far worse fate for capitalism, which would be a communist takeover. By the same token, what enables capitalists to say, we don't need a compromise anymore, is the collapse of the Soviet Union, because there no longer is this kind of radical threat. Uh, And uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, opens the world to capitalist penetration in ways that has not been opened since the early decades of the 20th century, before the Russian Revolution began removing very substantial lands from the the capitalist world. So uh, capitalism becomes global in the 1990s. Um, Capitalists are feeling very powerful. They don't feel the same need or pressure to compromise. The labor movement declines precipitously. The welfare state declines. Um, And inequality between rich and poor increases dramatically. So the... The, this, the existence, now I, I should be clear, I regard the Soviet Union as a, the communism as a tyrannical system. I'm not someone who's calling for its restoration. But if we're to understand its historical role, we have to understand that it played a role in terms of limiting what capitalists could do and inclining them to a greater degree of compromise than they otherwise would have been willing to entertain. 
And now that communism is gone, I think finding a replacement constraint for communism in, in, in the world today is one of the great challenges. Um, but that is why the story of the Soviet Union, is its rise and fall, is quite central to the story that I'm telling about um, the rise of neoliberalism in the United States. The neoliberalism can only triumph in the world. I'm sorry, neoliberalism can only triumph both in the United States and, the, and in the world once communism has fallen. This is the end of part one of our extended conversation with Gary Gerstel at the Review of Democracy. We shall release the second part of this conversation next week. Today, Gary Gerstel has discussed his interpretation of the long durée history of liberalism. He has introduced us to his encompassing approach to the study of political orders and how he views the neoliberal orders rise to hegemony in the US and why the history of the Soviet Union is in fact crucial to an understanding of the trajectory of the United States. In the second part, Gerstel shall discuss why the opposed moral perspectives of liberals and conservatives, in fact, both proved eminently compatible with the neoliberal political order. He will also devote attention to the controversial question why the neoliberal order used the coercive power of the state to incarcerate millions of Americans. And last but not least, he will reflect on the ways in which we can observe the retreat of neoliberal hegemony today. We hope you have enjoyed the first part of our conversation today, and you'll be looking out for part two next week. <laughs>